So the book of Isaiah is one of the most beloved and referred to texts, both in the Jewish tradition and in our Christian tradition. From an essay in the Jewish Study Bible, Isaiah is cited more than any other prophetic text in literature and more half-taught to the prophetic readings that are chanted in the synagogues on the Sabbath are taken from Isaiah. First-time readers of Isaiah are often surprised to find that a well-known expression or a famous quotation or even a favorite song comes from the words in that book. Isaiah is also a rich resource for many of our Christian interpretations of Scripture. From an essay in the New Interpreter Study Bible, the book of Isaiah is celebrated especially, especially by liberation theologians as a prophetic mandate for peace and justice. Chapters 40 to 55 and then 56 to 66 are also central to feminist theologians because of their positive female imagery. However, and there's always however, over the last 2,000 years, Isaiah has also been used to be, uh, it's cited frequently by people who are very anti-Semitic and can find a condemnation of every Jewish person and all of Judaism in the books where it condemns the unrighteous among the ancient Israelites. They claim that God has rejected Judaism in favor of their own Christian faith, and that is a misreading of this prophetic text. Most scholars don't believe that the book is the work of only one person. It's typically described in sections. There's 1st Isaiah, 2nd Isaiah, 3rd Isaiah. 1st Isaiah is chapters 1 through 39, and it likely does have ties to the honest-to-goodness 8th century BCE prophet. But after chapter 39, the name Isaiah is not mentioned. 2nd Isaiah covers chapters 40 through 55, and they were likely written when the temple was destroyed the first time, sometime around 537 BCE, about 537 years before Christ. And that's when the elites were exiled to Babylon. Their temple was destroyed, and all of the elites were sent away someplace else. And 3rd Isaiah, 56 through 66-ish, were more likely written around the time of the reconstruction of the temple, sometime around 515 BCE. In the middle part of the book, 2nd Isaiah, is for the most part an uplifting set of prophecies. 3rd Isaiah sees the exiles trying to deal with the reality of return from exile and the difficulty of having to rebuild the temple. So only the elites were exiled to Babylon. So when they return, they want to start changing things and imposing their ideas on people who were not exiled. And there was a little bit of skirmish. And 3rd Isaiah grapples with this tension. But we are dealing with books from the end. Where Isaiah is trying to grapple with the return from exile. Evidently, Jesus was a fan of Isaiah. The gospel writers have Jesus quote seven different prophets. Isaiah, Hosea, Micah, Malachi, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Zechariah. Most of them he quotes once. Hosea he quotes three times. But Isaiah, the gospel writers have Jesus quote him eight times. In many of his sermons... The Reverend William Barber 
will open by saying that the gospel writer of Luke starts Jesus' prophetic ministry with opening the scroll of Isaiah and reading. Now I can just see the scene. Here's Jesus teaching in the synagogue like he does normally in Luke. He picks up the scroll. He stands up. He walks to the front of the room. He opens the scroll. He starts to read and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll and he sits back down again. First century mic drop, right? Can you just see him up there, up on stage? This is it. And people loved it. They loved it. They were like, oh my God, did you hear Jesus? This is our Jesus, the son of the carpenter. Oh my God, this guy is awesome. We love him. And then in short order, Jesus says something that they do not like, something they don't want to hear, and they go from loving him to wanting to throw him off the cliff. It doesn't take very many verses to go from being loved to being executed, let me tell you. So the first thought that I had when I woke up on Wednesday morning, and I know it's going to sound like a cliche, but this was my thought. What would Jesus do? And the answer that I got in response was, loose the bonds of injustice. And for a very, very, very long time this week, I struggled with this sermon. There are people in marginalized groups women, people of color, religious minorities, members of the LGBTQ community, who feel a real sense of threat. And as a member of the queer community, I share their sense of trepidation. But I don't want to offer any pithy theological platitudes. I don't want to gloss over people's real fear by saying that everything is going to be okay. Because while I might feel that's the case for me, there are other people who certainly do not feel that way. And then I remembered something that a, my preaching professor told me. When all else fails, he said, preach the gospel. So then what came into my head was the discussion that Jesus was having with the Pharisees and the Sadducees about loving one another. You probably remember the stories. I'm sure you do. Mark, describing the religious authorities, come to Jesus and they ask him what the greatest commandment is. And he told them that the greatest commandment was that you should love your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and all of your strength. And that the second commandment was to love your neighbor as yourself. In Matthew, the story is presented in a way that they're trying to trick Jesus when they ask this question. They're trying to get something over on him. Now remember, Jesus was talking to the religion standard bearers of the day. He was talking to people like you and me, reminding us that we need to love our neighbors. And for Jesus, loving somebody wasn't just some fluffy little sentimental word. For Jesus, loving people meant taking action. It meant standing up for the most vulnerable, 
It meant reaching out to those who are the most hurt by systems of domination. Now, I have no doubt that when Jesus walked up and she saw that woman who was going to be stoned because people thought that she was committing adultery, I have no doubt that Jesus looked at the crowd of people with the rocks and he loved them. But he saved that woman's life. By quoting Isaiah when Jesus starts his ministry, Jesus tells us what loving our neighbor and loving God actually looks like. Loving our neighbor means doing hard, hard work. Loving our neighbor is fighting injustice at every turn, whether that means fighting against racism or standing up to homophobia or calling out misogyny or fighting the exploitation of our workers. Loving our neighbors means that we make sure that everybody has enough to eat. Loving our neighbors means that people close to us have clothes to wear and a place to live. Loving our neighbor means that we satisfy the needs of the afflicted, that we satisfy the needs of the imprisoned and the sick and the bullied. Loving our neighbor means that we are the voices for the people who have been silenced. Loving our neighbor means that those of us in a position of privilege who are already at the table invite people who have been excluded so that they too can bring their voices. Jesus starts off his ministry by saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release of the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to let the oppressed go free. Pastor Nathan Ham, pastor at Story House, said recently that if the message that we proclaim is not good news for immigrants or Muslims or members of the LGBT community or for the poor or for the outcast or for the immigrant, then it is not the gospel. And here's another thing that Jesus said, and this is the absolute hardest thing for me to do as somebody who wants to follow Jesus. Jesus told me that I need to love my enemy and that I need to pray for those who persecute me. And that's really difficult. Jesus' statement that we're to love our enemies is also ripe for abuse. For centuries, people who have been abused, who have been oppressed, domestic violence victims, victims of sexual assault, they've been told that good Christians need to love their enemy and that they have to forgive as Jesus forgives. Now, I have learned over the years that I pray for my enemy because if I don't, Resentment and fear and anger will eat me up. But there is psalm after psalm after psalm where there is a person in pain who is persecuted and crying out to God for relief, asking God to intervene. Author and theologian Jory Michael writes that there cannot be reconciliation without repentance, and there cannot be restoration without responsibility, and unity comes from reconciliation. We need to love our neighbor but we also need to be wise and discerning. While we work for the most vulnerable, we need to be brave in our rejection of injustice. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that we are not simply to bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice. We are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. That, says Isaiah, is the worship that God is after. Amen.